Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. We want to turn today to Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we were last week. Someone asked me if I thought we'd get to the second half of verse 1 today. We might. We just might. But I don't want to give any guarantees. We're in no hurry. Isaiah chapter 6, and we will begin reading in verse 1. It's a familiar passage of Scripture, at least the first few verses. We'll read through verse 13. He says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, we already told you that's a significant statement if you say nothing else. For 52 years, they had had a good king. 52 years of prosperity, a secure government. He refortified the walls of Jerusalem. He strengthened the armies of Jerusalem. They had financial prosperity and security for 52 years. But he says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, He marks this as a significant date, and it was. Some might say, well, the throne is empty. But that's if you just do an outward look. That's the outlook. But if you do an upward look like God invited Isaiah to do, you discover the throne, the one that matters, is anything but empty. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds, this is where the doors would be, and this is where the foundation would be fortified. The strongest part of a structure, these thresholds tremble at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, woe is me, for I'm ruined, I'm scattered. The Hebrew word here is I'm undone, I'm torn apart, I'm just in pieces. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips, your lips is, it would divulge what was in the heart. Jesus would teach us that later. The abundance of what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. Isaiah said, my lips are dirty because my heart is dirty. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Notice he addressed his own sin first. That's always a great place to start. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand and he had that which he had taken from the altar with tongs and he touched my mouth with it and said behold this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven and then i heard the voice of the lord saying he's not spoken till now I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And he said, Then I said, Here am I. Not here I am. Here I am is a location. God knew where he was. He is responding not with his location, but with his willingness and his surrender. He said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, go. 
and tell this people, this is his own people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people completely insensitive. Their ears dull. The word here in the Hebrew is fat. Give them fat ears, slow ears, and their eyes are dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated. And without inhabitant, he's telling him it won't be long. Those tribes in the north, you see in the middle of this whole thing, there's a civil war going on. The two tribes in the south are fighting with the ten tribes in the north. And it's a terrible thing that God's people are fighting among themselves. But it won't be the first time and it certainly would not be the last. But he says, don't worry about them. He's already told Isaiah, he says, the ten tribes in the north are going into captivity. Assyria will overthrow them soon. And then it would only be a few more years that the Babylonians would overthrow the Assyrians. And the Babylonians being even more vicious, they would come for the two tribes in the south. Houses without people. He says the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, six to eight hundred miles or so. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. It's like a ghost town. It was a place I gave them as a gift and protected for them for years and years. And now they're gone because of their disobedience. He says, yet, verse 13, there will be a tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, like a tree stump that remains when it is felled. And the holy seed is its stump. We shared with you last week that it's a powerful thing when a person comes to grip with the holiness of God. That's probably about all we got to share with you last week. But we talked about an experience that Chuck Colson had years after he was saved. If you don't know who he, who he is, you could look him up. But he worked for President Nixon. He got in trouble with Watergate. He went to prison. He was, his sin was very public. He was a disgraced man. But he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. But it would be many years later that he said, before I would wind up on my face in the floor of my house, understanding from the preaching of R.C. Sproul, he said, understanding what the holiness of God really meant. And I, I don't think he meant I fully understood it. I don't think we can. But I do believe this. One of the things that would help us as born-again Christians is not some second work of grace. If you are born again, you have the Spirit of God in you already. Paul tells us if you don't have the Spirit of God, then you don't belong to God. So we already have all of that. It's, it's not some uh, extra uh, getting say process. There's not a plan B that comes later. No, it's when you are born again, know you are a saint. Isaiah is not getting saved again, but he is about to understand that God is the most uncommon, holy thing I could ever imagine. And when we can get to the place as Christians that we understand what God being holy really means. I think we'll quit arguing about how much can we sin and still go to heaven and dumb things like, well, do you have to go to church to be a Christian and all of that? I think we will quit arguing about all of that and we will realize that we serve an awesome, awesome God that we cannot even wrap our mind around and we we cannot even understand Him, but that He deserves everything that we have. 
I think that would help us a lot. We talked about Colson. We also, if you've not heard of him, perhaps you've heard of Job. We talked about him last week and how God was able to show him what he was really like. And then later he would repent in ashes and dust. But then we also talked about what Isaiah had to say. I would just ask you today as we start. Have you ever had your king to die? And what I mean by that, I don't mean the president of the United States. I think I'm old enough, I can remember one of them doing that. While he was in office, he was assassinated. So I'll give you some idea about how old I am. And no, it wasn't George Washington. But when your king dies... That was a big deal to Isaiah. This is, we've had prosperity. The tribes in the north have had nothing but chaos. They've had king after king after king that they were all worthless. You never, ever have a good king in the northern tribes. Put that on my tombstone. I don't care. I know I repeat it all the time. Fine. They never had a good king. The tribes in the south had a few good ones. And Uzziah was one of them, and he brought peace and prosperity to the people, and they had grown to depend upon his leadership, and and they found security in him. So I'm asking you from a spiritual standpoint, have you ever had that thing in your life that that you just always thought would be there, and suddenly it's, it's not there anymore? I think probably the worst thing I could ever imagine, ever imagine, I can't wrap my mind around it, is to lose a child. And some of you have been through that. That has to be uh, just the most incredible pain and shock to the system that, that, that you could ever imagine, especially when they're young and it happens suddenly. But, but there are other things as, as well. Sometimes we feel so good about ourselves and and we're just romping through life wide open. And then all of a sudden, the thing that we put all our faith and trust in, the thing that we thought would always be there forever, is suddenly either threatened or disappears. Maybe it was a husband that told you he would love you forever, but you found out that he didn't. Maybe it was a spouse, your wife, maybe that that you thought you would always have and, and, and that you loved and cared for and, and maybe a divorce or maybe death, or, but something's come along and it absolutely upended your life. I can tell you, just one trip, and I don't want, want to sound morbid here, but just one trip to the doctor's office with the right test results. And, buddy, I want to tell you something. You'll find out really fast just how vulnerable we are as human beings. If I live to be 200 years old, I won't ever forget the day that Brother Josh told me I had cancer in my body. Well, that hit me like a brick. Wow. He was crying. I was crying. But I, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go, but I just, I wasn't thinking about that. I, I, I just went in for a routine exam, almost mad because my wife talked me into going to start with. Who needs that? I noticed a few problems, but hey, look, I Googled it, okay? So I was, <laughs> I was in the clear. What, what, here, he's here today. I'm glad you are. But so what does Josh know? I got Google. <laughs> and it says, oh, it's probably something else. Yeah, I, I was good enough for me. I was that big of a fool. I can just tell you, it hit me harder than when I lost my arm in the horrible accident. I mean, it just, it, 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 it's incredible. But I'm, I'm trying to tell you, your king can die, friend. The thing you put your trust in, maybe you worked so hard to pay all of your bills off, finally get the house paid off. You, you, you had like $27 million dollars in student debt and you finally got it paid off okay don't be ashamed of that I paid my last payment I was 56 years old that's why I'm not real happy about having to pay your kids debt off if that happens either but I had to I'm just saying maybe you're feeling financially secure you you've already sat down and 
And I, I see online sometimes these uh, financial advisors on how to, to live well in retirement on a million dollars. I'm like, well, I'd like to know that. There's just one part of it that I'd be missing, and so I'm not sure how we would overcome that. But I'm just telling you, there are people that they've already planned for years and years, and they got life all by the tail. And, and, and I understand, uh, we, we, we understand that we don't know what tomorrow holds, but it is so easy to be lulled away into just thinking that everything is going to be all right. That was terrible, but that happened to somebody else. And, 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 and this something you read about in the paper seems so far away. I can tell you that your king, the thing you put your faith and your trust in, it can be gone tomorrow. Matter of fact, if you are a born-again Christian, the only thing that you are guaranteed to have this time tomorrow, the only thing, is your relationship with God. All of the rest can be gone. So Isaiah says, that's where I was. I'm a prophet in a country that has turned its back on God and they don't care about him anymore and I preach and they don't listen and, 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 and then there's these enemies up north that are supposed to be God's people as well and we are a laughing stock to the whole world because after all the battles that we fought and won together, now here we are as God's people and we're fighting among ourselves. You know, one of the things that we have to always remember and never forget, God is sovereign and God is in charge of everything. And when people say sometimes, you know, I, I, I want to give God control of my life, I, I don't want to stop you from, from, from seeking that out. <laughs> That's a good direction to start in. But let me tell you something, God is already in control of your life. God is already sovereign. As a matter of fact, I, I, I can just tell you, He already has control of your life. Just think about this. When you pray, have you ever had a conversation with God where you tell God that, you know, I think in about 10 more years might be a good time to die? You ever, you ever tell God that? You ever said, you know, I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll be uh, 85, I'll be 90, I'll be whatever uh, I, you know, you don't have that conversation with him. You can go plan your funeral, but I, I bet you there's nowhere on the page where you put a date down as to when you're going to be there. God's already in charge of your life. Have you ever told God there's some diseases I'd like to not have? I don't want that, God. I don't want cancer. I don't want my children to die before I do, God. I, I don't want my marriage to go south. Have you given God a list of things that, that you expect to see happen and others that you hope and pray never will? God is already in charge. He's already in charge of our life. Well... Let me just say this, King Uzziah was a good king in a lot of ways. But when he died, he died an outcast. And the reason he did was because he was foolish. He had a foolish moment in his life when he went into the temple, a place he had no business going. And there were priests that went in there with him, begging him to leave. Now, this is so typical of when we get on our high horse and we decide we know what we can do. And he had been praised and honored and maybe it had gone to his head. But Uzziah, as a king, with all the power and authority he had, he was forbidden to go into that area of the temple. But he went anyway. And while he was standing there so defiantly, the other priests saw something on his forehead and they realized that leprosy was breaking out all over him. And I'm going to guess he beat them all to the door getting out of there. You know, I don't know if you've been through an experience like this, but when you go somewhere or try to live your life in a way that you know is displeasing to God, sometimes God has a way of not having to beg you to leave 
uh, he'll make you want to leave. I don't know if you've ever done business with God on that level, but I can tell you, God can make you want to change so badly. And that's how Uzziah died. He didn't live in the palace anymore. He lived and died in a leper colony, alienated from the very people that he had loved and cared for for 52 years. So this is where Isaiah is. He said, that's when I saw the Lord. It was when my life was finally at this kind of place. In verse 2, he says this, the seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, I'm not trying to read anything into this, but one of the things we understand when we look at Scripture as a whole is, is covering our feet is a sign of humility. You remember the great statue that Nebuchadnezzar made of himself. What was the weak point of that statue? It had feet of clay, Daniel told him. And it cannot stand. The rest of it is strong. But those feet are touching this earth. You are not God, Nebuchadnezzar. You're standing on his earth. And the feet I saw in my dream were made of clay. And and you will certainly fall. So they're covering their feet out of humility. They're also covering their eyes because they know that we cannot look at God Because He is so holy. So they hide their eyes from God. These are not humans. These are sinless creatures. They're not fallen angels. But yet they themselves are so reverent of a holy God that they cover their faces. And then with their other two wings they flew. You know, we won't see this again in Scripture. These seraphim... We don't hear them occur, uh, have them occurring again. Later on, we will run into some creatures in the book of the Revelation, but, but this is the only time we run into these seraphim. And em means plural. So in some older English translations, uh, I won't name it, but, uh, they have seraphims. That's plural, plural. <laughs> But seraphim means more than one, the em on the end. And these creatures, if you look at the word seraph, it means burning. And it's the same word that was used in Numbers 21 for the serpents that were uh, in the camp with God's people that would, would bite them. And it was so very, very painful. So I'm not trying to draw you a picture of of what these things really look like. It's hard to imagine. I mean, I already don't like snakes, but I've never run into one that was on fire and could fly. But that's somewhat of what they look like. And they're crying out, holy, holy. As a matter of fact, it's so powerful that when one of them cried, holy, 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 it wasn't God's voice that shook the temple. It was the voice of that seraph. That seraph spoke such truth. It says that the place was shaken. In verse 3, and one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Somebody ought to write a song. In the Hebrew, they really don't have much of a word for very. So Hebrew culture was noted or or an idiom of that culture uh, would have been that when they wanted to emphasize something, they would repeat it. And if it was really important, they would repeat it twice. As a matter of fact, we see Jesus do this. I believe 25 times uh, in the book of John. Uh, it might be in all the Gospels, but, but many times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Amen, Amen, Lego Soy. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. He doubles the truly. In other words, <laughs> you know, sometimes us preachers might say something that finally makes sense. Hopefully we do. And people will go, amen. 
Jesus said, uh, say amen before I speak, because I can guarantee you what's about to come out of my mouth is worthy of a double amen. He says, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you. But this is the only time that we have where God or his, his described as holy to the third power. Holy, holy, holy. It means more than just very holy. It means He is ultimately holy. He's holy beyond anything that we could ever think or, or imagine. As a matter of fact, the only other place we see this in Scripture is in the Revelation chapter 4. It says, in the four living creatures, this is something that John saw. They're not called seraphim, but each of them had six wings and are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Awesome word. I think sometimes we take verses like that and we remember them, but I don't think we think about them enough. He was, and He is, and He is to come all at the same time. All at the same time. God is not limited to time like you and I. That's why I love what C.S. Lewis says when we go to God in prayer. He says, don't think of it as, man, there's probably a billion people praying today, trying to get the attention of God. He said, no, God lives outside of time. So when you fall on your face before God, it as if you are the only person in the entire universe. He sits and listens to your prayers. Matter of fact, we're told in the Revelation that the prayers of the saints are delivered to the throne of God in golden bowls. You don't have to mail it in. They'll take it to him. Isn't that great? Just a few times in scripture, we get a little peek of what the eternal realm is like. And man, I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not wishing away time, but one of these days, no matter what happens and, and who knows, uh, how, how long we'll be here. That's not in my area. That's God's control. But I can just tell you now, one of these days when I leave this world, I'm going to step into a world that Isaiah and and John in the Revelation and a few others have gotten just a little glimpse of God a time or two. But we will get to step into that realm where time is no more. And it's so different than anything we could have ever Imagine, we will be in a city called holy because it will be like God, different than anything else. Now, I want to ask you a question. What does holy mean? I I, I think probably the best way to start this is to tell you the opposite of holy. It's a word that we would understand. The opposite of holy is common. The opposite of holy is is not like sinful. That's not a complete understanding of it because God is not holy because He is sinless. God is holy by His very nature. It is an infinite qualitative difference that He has from all of His creation. He is not like anything else. So when we treat God as common, we are not treating Him as holy. And that word holy is probably, it, 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 it is the most powerful description of God because it has given us a, a picture of His character. And, and it's just hard for us to even wrap our mind around just how different He is from all the rest of His creation. As a matter of fact, you will notice that nowhere in Scripture does it say He is love, love. Love, or even wrath, wrath, wrath. It says he is holy, holy, holy. He is 
severed, separated. The word kadosh is the Hebrew word, and it really comes from the word which to means to cut away. He has severed or separated from all of the rest of creation. He is not like Superman. He's not like somebody who, who, who really is just better than the rest of us, bigger than the rest of us, stronger than the rest of us. He is not part of the rest of us. And that's something that's difficult for us to even wrap our mind around. Thirty times in Isaiah, he will call him holy. I don't remember who said it. But one pastor said one time that Satan used to have to make us atheists. He says now all he has to do is get us to forget that he is holy. You can still serve a God that you think is like some genie in the sky where you rub a lamp, pray a certain way. You know, we have that nowadays. Oh, yeah. That speak it, and God's got to do it. And, and if you sit there today and go, well, I know how that works, and I, I, I got that gift myself. Man, don't sit there and feel sorry for me like I'm stupid, okay? I'm just giving you what the Word of God says. You don't control God with your words. I don't care what the folks across the four lane have to say about it. You don't hold God hostage. Well, I agreed. Me and a brother of mine, we prayed. We came against it. We agreed together in prayer. That means God's got to get out of bed in the middle of the night and get a Cadillac in this yard. Wow. Let me know how that works. Let me know how that goes for you. We do not control Him. He is not a giant Santa in the sky. We have all of these crazy, weird notions about God. I can tell you the best thing you can say about God is He is holy, holy, holy. He is unlike anything on this earth. So if people die when they're 10 years old, we can try to hold God accountable for everything that we don't understand like that. When children get cancer or or when horrible tragedies happen, I don't understand those things either. And I don't claim to have the answers. But I will tell you this. I cannot hold God blamable or I cannot judge God and hold Him accountable for all the things that I do not understand. Because God Almighty is holy. He's holy. Ryan, or Richard Niebuhr, Reinhold was his brother. Don't want to get the Niebuhr boys mixed up today, do we? Richard Niebuhr said one time, he said, we have so deified man and humanized God that we can no longer tell the difference. Today, God is whatever I want him to be. A lot of people believe they are. Self. Self has replaced soul in our world. I can design God to be this, that, and the other. And you can preach to people right from the Word of God. And that's what we do here. We do Bible exposition. It helps to clear up a lot of arguments. It won't stop them all because some people, you can show them exactly what it says, expounding the very Word of God. And some people just absolutely will not accept that. But I can tell you, you don't get to create God in your image. He created us in His image. And every time somebody comes to me and starts telling me about, well, my God, when they start that sentence, I know I'm about to hear some hogwash. Well, I tell you, now, my God, the way I feel about it, that's two things right there you just already said that God don't even care about. What you think of Him and how you feel about it. I don't mean to be cynical. But I think when we start recreating God to where He's kinder and gentler, we make Jesus into somebody that's not mean like that Old Testament God. And we start rehabilitating God and making Him kinder and gentler and all of those things, we are creating a God that is in our image. I can tell you again, let me repeat it, if God does things away in a way that you would not do them, remember He is a holy God. 
He's a holy God. Nothing makes him holy. That's just part of his nature. But this is what is so cool. When God gets around something, it's not that these things make him holy, keeping the law. He's perfect. He's never sinned. But that's not what makes him holy. He made the law holy because it was something that came from him. Matter of fact, I love it when he meets with Moses. (laughs) When he meets with Moses in the desert. He's in the wilderness and he tells Moses, whoa, 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 hang on a minute there, buddy. You need to take your shoes off because the ground you are standing on is holy ground. It was just dirt a few minutes ago. It was all it was. But when the presence of God showed up, he took dirt and made it into something that was like no other dirt in the rest of the world. It was holy dirt. When God's presence comes to his house, whether we're meeting in a pasture or meeting in a nice building, that place becomes holy. And I can tell you this, this is what blows my mind. But when I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, and he came in me to live, he personally occupied my life and filled me with his spirit not because of one single thing I've ever done or will ever do but the word of God tells me I need to live a life of reverence and esteem for God not only because he is holy but because I am holy yeah Oh, if you're sitting there thinking, well, I won't be back. Guy got in the pulpit today and said he was perfect. I didn't, you, if you say that, you're, you're lying. See, there you go. You hadn't even got out of here today and you're already sinning. I didn't say that. I can tell you it blows my mind, but I belong to God. I am righteous before him. I am declared righteous before him. Not because of anything in my life that I have done, but it is a gift of God. Paul tells us in the book of Romans several times that the righteousness of God is manifested. It is shown forth in those who are born again. So I'm telling you, I stand here with a messed up life. Good Lord, I thought about it the other day. February is, is coming around. February the 13th was the night I got on my face before God, and my life has never been the same since. That's 44 years ago. I promised God that night I would give Him my life. I, I would live for Him, and, and I've messed up a whole lot of times, but I'm telling you something. That was the night I quit living for Michael Snellgrove, and I started living for God and trying to please Him, and I do a terrible, terrible job of it. But I'm so fortunate that I was so lost and so on my way to hell that God would care enough about me to save me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I think we have tried so hard to domesticate God. Domos is a word in Latin that means house. When we domesticate animals, we make them to where you can take them home. Now, some people get carried away with this. I'm going to go back to snakes for one second if you don't mind. You don't own a pet rattlesnake. You may have one in your house. You may feed him mice. But he is not a pet. And you will not domesticate him. Matter of fact, he thinks you live in his house. They have the mind of a cat. Don't get me started. Your dog lives in your house. Your cat, is he going to run meet you today when you get home? I doubt it. He'll wait on you to get in the house, and then when you get there, he's going to act like you're not even in the world. That's what undomesticated animals are like. We try to domesticate God. We try to get God to where we can take him home. We try to make God into something the Word of God will not allow we got people nowadays who take things that God has said is a sin. 
just an absolute sin, and we know that it is. And boy, it is, is it not frustrating as a Christian when we stand up for something that is in the Word of God and it's clear and it is plain as day and we're not trying to condemn anybody, but people treat us like we're bigots sometimes because there are people out there in the world that need salvation and they need forgiveness. They don't need affirmation. They don't need validation. They need forgiveness forgiveness of their sins just like we all do in our world today we've got such a domesticated gospel it just welcomes everybody in live however you want to we're just all one big happy family and one day in heaven we're just gonna have a super group hug up there and just it'll all be all right i'm afraid that's not true Matter of fact, Isaiah said, when I saw all of this, he said, all I could say is, verse 5, woe is me. He said, I realize, God, I am so ruined. You see, when you get a good look at God, it shows you a good look at yourself. We see ourselves. He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean clean lips for my eyes what showed me this how did i come to this conclusion because my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts i'll close here today but don't don't zoom out there were two serious realities that isaiah said i saw immediately when i saw god like this he said one was personal sin. Dahma is the word in the Hebrew. And it, it means to cause to cease. You fall down like a dead man. It also means to destroy or to be cut off. It means that I just was undone. He said I'm ruined. He said I realize that I'm not just someone who well I, I, I know I mess up once in a while and I and I might, not, I might not be all I need to be. He said, I just skipped every bit of that. He said, when I saw how holy and awesome God was, he said, the only thing I could think of is how unawesome and unholy I am. He said, I'm so undone. I'm so undone. And think about this. He's watching all of this happen, but he doesn't get to participate because he said, I'm so undone. And I'm so filled with sin. And he didn't get to go to the altar with the tongs and touch his own lips. The, 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 the redemption, the salvation had to come to him. He could not go and commandeer it himself. It was something that God had to bring to him. Wow. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. He saw personal sin. Secondly, he said, I see public sin. He said, I live among a people. They have unclean lips as well, God. Their hearts are not right either. Man. That's where our world is, friend. People say, well, I, I was judged by the church or I was put down or whatever. Or either they may say something like, well, I, I tell you, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm no worse than and just. And, and they're always encouraged when somebody that's a big spiritual preacher on TV falls. Well, that Jim Baker, I knew it. I knew it. My mama's always sending him money. I told her, I'm sorry, cuss. He's no better than the rest of it. Makes us feel good about ourselves when people fall. That ought to tell us how sinful and undone we are. We compare ourselves to others. <laughs> Man, we live among people. They have unclean lips too. I'll close with this thought today, but I've said it in recent studies, I think here even, but... The thing that divides, the question that divides the church nowadays, because we have some churches that they have very different beliefs. 
than what we find in Scripture. I'm not saying they believe differently than we do. They don't need to believe like we do. They need to believe like what God says. And their churches, they see things very, very different. So let me just tell you this. The question that divides biblical churches from progressive liberal churches, it's not, hear me well, it is not does God forgive sinners. Because we all believe that. We all believe that. They can call us bigots or they can say Pastor Mike is narrow-minded or whatever and you can give me the latest good old Rob Bell book. I won't read it. I won't need to. I've seen enough of him. But I'm just saying you you can believe whatever you want to about me. But I'm, I'm telling you, Don't you ever say, don't ever imagine for a second that Cornerstone Fellowship and biblically-based churches are not preaching that God will forgive. God will forgive. As a matter of fact, He's the only one that can forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life. So that's not the question that divides us. The question that divides biblical churches from progressive liberal churches is who needs forgiveness? That's the question. Who needs it? Do people who live the homosexual lifestyle need forgiving? There'll be churches that'll tell you, well, if you see it that way, you're bigoted and narrow-minded. Okay. What about people who are living together that aren't married? Do they need forgiveness? Even if you know some, are you going to go tell them they need forgiveness? No. Oh, we could never say something like that. It's not about will God forgive. Don't ever leave this church and go, well, they're, they're like a bunch of bigots over there. They're just so narrow-minded, and, and, and they just believe everything the Bible says. Well, you did get the last part right, because we do believe everything the Bible says. But we're not trying to be judgmental toward anybody. We want people to be set free from their sins, not to feel validated or authenticated in their sin. That will never help them. We want to see them be forgiven. You remember John chapter 8. I think we talked about it in a sermon recently maybe. But he forget he he first of all went to the man, not John 8 uh, John chapter 5. He went to the man that had been sick, paralyzed for 38 years, asked him, do you want to be well? And then later he runs into him in the temple. And he says to the man, he says, you've been healed. He says, now go and stop sinning before something worse happens to you. Because having to lay on that bed for 38 years was not your real problem. Your biggest problem was you are a sinner. And he says, if you don't address that, something much worse could happen to you. You can go read it. I think if we could gain an appreciation for what an awesome, awesome God we serve and how humbling it ought to make us to know that He would like to have a relationship with us. Man, blows my mind. Blows my mind. He'll go on and tell Isaiah. He says, you go on and tell him. Go on and tell him. He said, it's just going to make their hearts harder. It's just going to make their minds more stiffened. It's just going to make them more rebellious and it's not going to draw them to me. It will push them away. And and let me just tell you, we didn't read those verses or we didn't get to those verses today. But the last part of this chapter that we read when we read the Scripture, it occurs six times in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, it says Jesus had worked so many miracles in front of them, but they would not believe. And in John... Gospel where it speaks of that, it says they could not believe. Some have heard so many times, 
you, 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 you're never going to preach a sermon that's going to actually reach out to them. They have said no to God for so long and they've grown so comfortable with where they are with God and, and this domesticated understanding that they have of Him. You can preach from now on. That's a horrible thing to say. But Jesus says, these people I'm looking at, and they were looking straight at Jesus. He says, they won't believe because they cannot believe. They can't. They have said no so many times. They can't. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for loving us and caring about us. We thank you so much, Father. That even though you are so holy and so righteous and we were so undone and so helpless and so unworthy. That Lord, that you chose us before the foundation of the world. God, we praise your name for that. We thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us. Help us, God, as a church, as your people to not try to soften the gospel, but when, when, Lord, we feel that we are undone, when we know we have failed, God, help us to not to try to justify our sinfulness, but, Lord, to bask in your forgiveness and to cry out, Lord, for your mercy. Lord, forgive us for the so many times that we have failed to recognize just how holy and uncommon you are, God. Please forgive us, Lord. And I pray, God, you help us to answer the call. This world needs to hear about you. God, in our churches, sometimes we're so wrapped around the axle, fighting among ourselves like your people were here in this particular chapter. God, sometimes we are so focused on our personal lives and needs, Lord, God, I pray that you would help us, Father, to refocus on you and be willing to say, here am I. Here am I, God, send me. Send me, Lord. Let me help to teach a world that lives in darkness that they can have life and life eternal. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.